0: Hello, I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, creator of the Incandescent Radio Network, here with my friend and colleague Tony Farmer, host of the Black Lives Matter radio show. We are thrilled you are here with us today, so let's get started. Hello, welcome to tonight's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show. It is Valentine's Day, and this is actually the first of two podcasts that we'll be doing this evening. Black Lives Radio will be followed by Women Who Make Us Wine. But first, Tony Farmer, our fantastic host, who is in Washington, DC, and he is the host of the show, will be interviewing Dr. Billy Vaughn. He is the Senior Managing Director of Diversity Training University International and a slew of other remarkable things, a real leader in the diversity and inclusion market world. And we're so thrilled to have you here during Black History Month. So Tony, I'm gonna throw it over to you and I look forward to hearing your conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Hope. And Dr. Billy, uh, it's been too long since you and I have been able to shake each other's hand and and talk about all things, belonging and inclusion and diversity. You are one of the people that I respect most in this area. As a matter of fact, it could be said by those of us who have followed your work that you are in a large part the godfather of diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging space. And so, particularly in the educational space, so here at the Black Lives Matter radio show in our family, we have tried our very best to make sure that we talk about all things inclusion and belonging to let our listeners know what people are doing and the impact that it's having on our society and keep the conversation going. We had such a tumultuous 2020 and there are so many important conversations that came out of 2020, Hope and I job and our effort and our energy and our passion is to keep these conversations going for the purpose of having a positive impact moving forward. So Dr. Billy, if memory serves, your background is really in psychology. Tell me how you moved, you migrated from the psychology space and took that that educational and academic background and landed in the diversity, inclusion, equity and belonging space. First
0: of
2: all, thank you for inviting me today. I really appreciate it. I I always like to give um, my whatever I can uh, for Black History Month to to various uh, organizations. So I really appreciate your um, asking me to do this. I will say that very quickly, um, when I was uh, very young, and uh, just just getting into uh, college, uh, I would have these conversations. I, I grew up in San Diego where it was primarily, um, you know, the, the, the black population was very small. In my high school, there was only 10 African-Americans there. So if I didn't have white friends, I wouldn't have had any. If I didn't have Republican friends, I wouldn't have. Any. But both of those things afforded me an opportunity as a kid who actually grew up until uh, his early teens in, in in houston texas which was very uh, segregated For me an opportunity to bridge you know my early learning about you know race and race relations with um um this this uh reality that if i didn't have these other friends how was i going to get a, who was who was they going to have as friends and the nice thing about it is that um uh, san diego um and it's a whole nother story is is a is a it is the best ideal place for me to have made that bridge. Um, and one reason is because of military presence there and all the race relations training they did early on and stuff like that. But it really uh, uh, afforded me an opportunity as an African American kid who amongst very few uh, African American to um, learn about who I am and what. Um, people of other races are about by being in their everyday lives, uh, both their home lives and otherwise. In fact, one one white uh, Catholic family took me in for a year. They had nine kids. So I was like, wow, no. wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and uh, so I, I got to know these folks and I got to, and they would tell me things. We would have some incredible conversations and one of the things that struck me is they would say, you really know people. And I didn't really understand what they meant. I was just having a conversation. But over time that shaped me then to becoming a psychologist because uh, I was interested in people and differences. I couldn't, I, I still to this day, even though I understand it intellectually, I don't understand it emotionally how um, uh, race relations work in the South. Under segregation, because human beings are naturally heart to heart connected to each other, <laughs> and so fortunately, San Diego got me, gave me, uh, me an opportunity to to uh, develop that heart to heart connection, and that has been with me for a long time. I ended up going in psychology because that was a natural place for people who are curious about people and. <laughs> and, um, and human relations to be. Uh, but I thought I was gonna become a clinical psychologist and I ended up at UC San Diego. They had no clinical psychology and I got really interested in cultural psychology and at that time they had a, um, just make it simple, they had a combination of cultural psychology, uh, of, of uh, cognitive psychology, cognitive anthropology, cognitive sociology, and computer science that I decided to um, to learn from and develop my um, dissertation through. And so th- that naturally uh, gave me more of an academic identity than anything. But what was really nice is that my training involved having to be very practical. So I was out, um, I, I developed five pieces of software to, to teach. Um, Young black and Latinx kids who were low uh, reading comprehension to speed up their comprehension, and but that required me to be with them in their schools in the world, and we started afternoon camps and stuff like that. So I was always interested in applying this, and uh, afterwards I started training psychologists at California School of Professional Psychology, and and um, but we had to be applied ourselves. Most of them were clinicians. And so I would, you know, I just called myself an organizational psychologist, so I would do that. But my primary reason that they hired me and uh, one of the courses I, I, I was in charge of, had to do this, developing your cultural competence uh, to do uh, work as applied psychologist. And then people started asking me to uh, to do consulting and do training. And then uh, at some point, me and that uh, institution, <laughs> we had two different consciousnesses about <laughs> the world, so we both went our own way, right? Right, right. I, I was at the end of my contract, and uh, uh, so they were just happy that I left, as I was happy to, <laughs> to be going. Um, and prior to that, I, I had I had developed a program in um, a, a uh, exchange program with a. Uh, prestigious university in uh, southern Sweden called Lund, and I would I was literally there most of the time for ten years, and, and wow. uh, California School of Professional Psychology paid for everything, uh, and uh, so I was just there basically supervising old you know, and I did some online uh, instruction with my students in the United States, and uh, and that really blew my mind because you don't know how much historical baggage you take as a black person to in your life until you go to a country where they see you as american first mm. and when and when what happened was that my assumptions about why people were saying and doing things were busted quite often <laughs> they weren't it wasn't even on their minds, and every time I came home, I shared a little bit of that stuff that
0: right. I was
2: taking over there because I realized the world—it wasn't—it wasn't everybody it, everywhere, and it was my baggage. I didn't have to hold on to, it. Wow. so that helped me quite a bit. And uh, uh, so when I got that, just before I left, I, I ended that program. I um, developed uh, diversity training, University International. I, I, one of the programs that, that I had developed a, at CSPP was a doctoral program in cultural psychology, and I, it was very applied. So I thought of myself as creating people who would be out in the world doing things. And I started training people to be uh, diversity professionals back in 1998. We had people from all over the world, Kuala Lumpur, all. I used to send these three ring binders in the mail to people, and it was was a different day, right? So that's sort of my history of how I got here. And I'm going to tell you the reason I'm here today is because those graduates are phenomenal people. They are people who are doing some incredible stuff out there. They're teaching me now. That conference last uh, um, summer was a good example of that. Uh, of the student taking the, rant, the, the reins in that, and you know, both as advisor, advisor board as well as presenters, and this is why I'm still doing this work, uh, still doing a lot of consulting and racial equity. Recently, uh, I'm very well known in the cultural competence work. We have our own organizational inclusion and and equity um, uh, toolkit that we use. That's very popular. So. Um, uh, and and uh, got a book coming, another book coming out really soon uh, on um, on how we train people to transform organizations, um, uh, essentially. So uh, I'm excited to be here, uh, excited to talk about the
1: work Dr. Billy, I, I will say to you that most of the people that we have on our show, as much power and impact as they possess, we've been fortunate, hoping I've been fortunate that those people have... An equally equal amount of humility. And you are no different. Uh, I, I know the impact that you've had on this work in this space. I know all of the people that that you have have impacted and, and trained and taught how to do how to do this. I, I really want to dig into that a little bit. I want you to talk about the international presence that you created with your programs. And then I want you to tell us how you developed DELA from that that initial DTUI offering.
2: Thank you, Uh, I haven't thought about that much. That's an interesting um, twist on thinking about things. I would say that uh, I've always been international um, since uh, graduate school because uh, my graduate program was international, we had people from all over the the world and our laboratory from, from Japan, from Russia, from all kinds of places from from and so I'll in fact I remember the day that um there was a breakthrough it was the first email <laughs> between <laughs> Soviet Union and our laboratory. It was the first thing it's first time it happened uh, uh, um in the world so we were really blown away that we were able to to make that that happen and it, it shows how much technology was intertwined in my training uh, early on and how it was also infused with with, uh, relationships with people. Uh, And uh, so I brought that into my work um, and and did not want to um, have it so focused on what it's it's like to be an American uh, and what uh, race relations and uh, cultural diversity means in America so that I can infuse that into the into the training for the American as well. And what's come out of that are, are some interesting things. One is the relationship that the partnership we have with a, an outfit in um, in India who had gone through our training. So we want to offer it in India. Is there a market there? Well, it turns out we're in our approaching our fifth year of offering that program over there. And I'm going to tell you, they taught me a lot about how to do international partnerships because I thought I was an open guy and I was tolerant. (laughs) Those cultural differences challenged the heck out of me. (laughs) And negotiating uh, the partnership and negotiating what business is like and monies and all those types of things, and now I I I understand it uh, much better. But I had to lean into my stuff to make me get out of my own way to make the partnership work. But it, my background allowed me to ask the question, what is cultural about the stuff that's going on between right. me and my right. partner? And in doing that, I, I've transformed in the relationship. Hopefully they have too, but I certainly have transformed and understand Indian culture a whole lot better. And uh, we have others like uh, Norway, we're starting something up in Norway right now. That's an easier one for me, of course. Um, and uh, looking uh, like Australia as, as well. So our my work has always been influenced by my desire to uh, make certain that our graduates, no matter where they are, have a much broader understanding of how what the work is about and how to apply it in uh, an international
1: context I think that you could say to people who are dealing with racial the racial inequities that still exist in the United States well, how do you take your national experience and weave it into the message, the message that you deliver to the people who are the African Americans and the people who do DEI work in the states? How, how, do you, how do you embed that message, that international process of, hey, what's my baggage? What are the things that I actually have to navigate culturally? And how do I weave a message through that? What, what when you're teaching those of us who are states born and, and, and states uh How do you weave that message in when you're trying to teach this in this space?
2: That's a really good question. Uh, You're asking some great questions, Tony. I appreciate
1: it. Um, Coming from you, Dr. Billy, that makes me feel really good.
2: (laughs) Well, two things come to mind. One is, is I use my own experience. I just use my own experience in the classroom. You know, our instructors cannot be instructors if they're not practicing this, you know, some 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 programs they have folks who are basically technicians who are training folks. Our our people have to be out there doing the work, and uh, so so we need to bring that practical experience in. It and I try to hold myself as a model for that, and by and and by that, what I mean what I mean by that is what. I try to do is use my experience in other cultures and how I've been challenged by them to help people understand uh, two things. One is that you gotta always ask the question, what's cultural about this? When you're dealing with somebody who's different, who presumably of a different culture than you are. Don't, don't be in a rush. <laughs> you're not gonna figure it all out at one time. Uh, and if it takes longer to, uh, for example, get that contract done, it might take longer. Sometimes you might lose that con- that that contract, but you would have learned something. That's better than getting yourself into a contract and then there's a lot of conflict that you you know later on. So for me, it's a bottom up kind of process. That I learned about you know I, I learned a lot about the Indian culture. Um, By going over there, um, uh, by uh, being in partnership with both, uh, meeting other other Indian, people from India. And I began to notice that there are some patterns that were, um, I wouldn't say clearly cultural, but they certainly uh, um, helped me navigate those differences better uh, um, without my having some some actual data to say that these are cultural variables, right? Right. So a lot of it is bottom up. And, and we have to the same way when we go into a new organizational culture, right? Right. We can't just presume, assume that this culture is just like the one where, that we left, even if they have to be in the same stage of inclusion. We have to... We, I'm always asking myself, okay, what is the hidden culture in this organization? And if you can start by... Yeah, finding ways to embed yourself in a culture in which you know very little about and you don't have a whole bunch of crutches to help you get through it and navigate yourself through that with a lot of humility, um, you'll get there. And that's going to have a, a considerable impact on the way you do the work
1: as well. So let's talk a little bit more about DALA. So DALA is the Diversity Executive Leadership Academy. Did I get that right? And yeah. again, you're being extremely modest in uh, exhibiting a, a, a huge amount of humility. i'm gonna I'm gonna bust that paradigm here for a moment uh, because of how proud I am of of everything that you've accomplished. I want you to give our audience an idea of how many people you have trained and how many people ha- are now certified in this work. Uh, in the number of different programs. So, you have several different programs. Give our audience an idea of how many people have come through Dr. Billy's program and are now doing this work internationally.
2: Well, since uh, the first CDP program, uh, we um, came up with that, the Certified Diversity uh, um, Professional, we came up with it, I think, in 2003, 2004. And um, We had a magazine that came out uh, called Strategic Diversity Inclusion Management Magazine. And that was our first effort to um, introduce this idea that credentials is very important in a a broad way. And so we introduced both the diversity training uh, certification as well as the um, the diversity leadership uh, certification, which is the CDP. At that time, and it, and and our our approach there was to fill the void. I should say, our goal was to fill the void in the area of controversy leadership, as well as in training, because we saw an increase in the need. Yeah, there were no programs out there trained. There was a few st- st- certificate programs. One was a national training laboratory. They had a very extensive thing. You had to be, you had to go and immerse yourself in a culture for six or eight weeks. It was kind of, you know, not, not everybody could do it. Uh, and they had a, a couple of smaller uh, certificate programs, but nothing. That, the, what I thought was people really needed skills. They didn't need to take a test. They didn't need... They didn't need to, um, to uh, develop a um, an academic report or, or, or a uh, uh, kind of a senior thesis at the end or, or perspective. They needed skills that they can use. So that's why diversity training started off. Because I, I realized a lot of people were making mistakes as a, as a diversity training trainer. And it was getting these, these companies in the court. Well, <laughs> what is that they're doing? They're, they're trying to do all the right thing. They got their heart into it. I got some great stories. I, I won't go into in, in detail right now. But these people are well intentioned. They're doing. They just weren't very well trained. So right. we developed the 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 facilitation training as well as the training design and development uh, courses uh, or programs, so that people can do this stuff competently. And I. I had a pretty good recipe for uh, how to facilitate things in a compassionate way without um, uh, uh, colluding in uh, the things that uh, um, uh, undermine our efforts to make a difference in organizations. So that's what I've been training. Then, then we realized that people, uh, these organizations, they, they wanted a long-term um, effort and it's too expensive and too um, haphazard in some kind of ways. They have a consultant coming in and out doing it. So we, we started to see um, they're starting to, to, to ask people in-house to do it. And somebody needed to train those folks. So we started uh, soliciting and people were looking for it. So they found us. And lo and behold, of course, there, there's plenty of competition right now. And, and that's good. I wanted the the, the, the uh, profession to develop. I'm not going right. to go out and try trademark any of this stuff because it, I right. want it out there. I do. and right. I love the competition because I think I do it done good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so bring on you the do. competition. We'll do it right. Yes, you I, do. What, what everybody says is, you teach us practical skills. Mm-hmm. I know how to talk to the leadership. I know how to develop a case. I know I know how to uh, put my thumb on the pulse of what this organization needs. I know why I can't get any further than I want to, because of my understanding of how of the organizational culture in the way in which you taught taught me. I had a couple of uh, really incredible handwritten cards that were given to me recently. And they just make me want to weep because these these graduates they really get it and they tell you yeah. about how empowered they feel. Yeah. And the discussions with these high-level people and they, those high-level people are sitting back listening.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And want yeah. more afterwards, and that's how we want people to be out there. We don't want people to end up. Losing their jobs because they did something that they weren't aware that they were even doing it in the at the wrong time in the wrong place. Right. Um, and I try. I tell them about my own mistakes so that so I can help them avoid them and other mistakes as well. So I think th- those are some of the keys.
1: So so since two thousand three, of uh, the certified diversity professional uh, practitioner the certified diversity executive and the certified diversity recruitment how many people do you think how many individuals do you think can can you even count
2: uh, yeah there there's a counter on our site <laughs> and and i think it's a little outdated now but i know that i know that we have over 2000
1: um 2000 CDP, people cdt 2000 people trained to have these conversations in organizations across the globe. Absolutely. I just need I just needed that said. <laughs> I, just, I just need Absolutely. people who are listening to you and trying to get into this space to understand your commitment to making sure that, that people have credentials in this space.
2: That's right. And and mind you, we we have more CDTs, certified diversity trainers, but I just remember the certified diversity professional much better because we've had the CDTs much longer. So Yes. Um, but I don't really keep track on that, but, but I have people who, who that's their, their job to keep track of that.
1: I am, uh, I am, anybody who's listening to this can tell that I have a bias toward Dr. Billy and his work, and that I'm a huge fan and I've been impacted. And I went to uh, the first or second conference that you had, and very proud to have participated in one you had in 2020, uh, given, given COVID. Give us a little bit of how COVID impacted you and your work in 2020. Well, it's mixed. Number one,
2: I can tell you that this has 2020 was a banner year for us. Okay. We made, I mean, in, in, from June to July, all the way up to October, we had more people looking to be certified than we could I have to tell you that we thought, so we, we almost didn't keep up with them. I mean, we had a couple of people just left, yeah, right? right? Because we, we didn't have any way to predict the number of people who want to get certified. And I have to admit, we weren't completely satisfied, but we recovered very quickly because um, we have the infrastructure to do it. It's just that when you when you go from getting, um, you know, 12, 14 people a month uh, 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 during that period of time because that's you know that's kind of a slow period to getting about 25 to 30 a week. It really changes the um, it changes things (laughs) and and I just I keep my my registrar she keep she keeps saying. She keep telling me what we have to keep up with. I said, it's going to slow down, don't worry. It wasn't <laughs> slowing down. <laughs> so, so that's one thing, is that uh, it wasn't COVID. It was the combination, uh, and this is just my analysis of it. There's it a combination of COVID getting a- and Black Lives Matter uh, pro- uh, protests coming at the same time where people were sheltered in place. So many of us could not get a, we, did, we couldn't keep our, we had the, we couldn't be unconscious of it by running around, shopping, going to work, coming home, picking up the kids and um, doing our community work, all those things. Those things weren't there for us to do. We were at home in front of the TV. Yeah, or yeah. the computer. And so many of us who would have otherwise been able to be distracted were not able to because we were confined. Yes. And as a result, that was a different response than we've ever seen before because mm-hmm. it penetrated the psyche of Americans. And that led to especially young people, putting pressure on their CEOs and chancellors and saying, what are you going to do about this? Yeah, yeah. And those chancellors and those CEOs started listening because they, too, were in front of their televisions. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a central piece of history with respect to Americans shift towards embracing inclusion in another way. And I hesitantly but courageously will say I don't think it's gonna change. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think I think, I think right. you I think you're any assessment you make, I'm gonna sign off on Bill, Dr. Billy, because I know you've done the work. He, he, think about this and give me your response. Uh, the need is moved, we don't have a substantive way to calculate how much is moved or whether it's moved enough or whether the movement is adequate. there's still so much work to do. But since last year, Dr. Billy, uh, we have a new a first in the White House, the first African-American or woman of color in the vice president's office. Uh, we have this surge of Organization that are interested and invested in diversity, inclusion, and equity, and belonging. We have this interest, this depth of interest like we've never had before. As you consider Black History Month 2021 and the years that you've been doing this work, what pops up for you? What, what resonates most with you during, at this time?
2: Hidden figures.
1: Talk to me about it.
2: Black history is both a history of the struggles of Black people trying to and fighting for recognition as being equal to anybody else in this country and this world. If we look at Black history, we have all these examples of people who've made all these achievements, but they don't resonate with us very well. The Black Power Movement, the Black Lives Matter Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, police brutality, poverty, those are the things that stick out in the psyche of America. And that needs to change because that really is only a partial history of Black people in America and the world. And it's only because most of our contributions have been hidden that we have this impression about what Blackness is in America that is not even half the story. So somehow we've all, even as Black people, we've colluded in this, this being relegated to this this idea that we've been relegated to the bottom of the the social, political, and economic, and educational hierarchy. And in some ways that's real, but in other ways, there are so many hidden figures in the the black um, uh, communities that if we don't give them some recognition, we won't ever change. The status quo. The the status quo comes when we exploit our greatness beyond sports and entertainment, but in the ways in which we've actually had an impact on what it means to be an American. So Hidden Figures is a very, very good example of how Black people have been infused in the history of victories and accomplishments and innovations that the United States has, has experienced. But what has happened is that, that America has a culture where somebody has to have credit. We're not a society where everybody gets credit. We'd like, we'd like to have these figures that, that we uh, um, uh, put on pedestals so we can create statues of them. Exactly, right? Mm, right. uh, but in, in reality, there's no leader and there's no p- great person who hasn't had a team of great people behind them. And many of those great people were African-American. Now, the difference is that at this point in time, on the one hand, one can say, hey, listen, yes, but look, all those other folks who were behind the scenes, they didn't get credit either. But they did it indirectly because they shared, as just said, the whiteness of the person <laughs> who <laughs> was put on the pedestal. Yeah. So the way that you uh, you you change that is to be intentional about it about it and that's why black history month is so important but it's like one woman said on, on, on LinkedIn I experience
1: black history every day I look <laughs> <in> here <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was, uh,
2: I, black history. <laughs> I was
1: sharing with uh, one of our other guests that I used to listen to the Tom Jones Morning Show religiously yeah. way back. And he always promoted Black History 365. Right. And so it was always interesting that and, and he had a couple of corporate a couple of corporate sponsorships yeah. that really pushed that agenda. Mm-hmm. Dr. Billy, you are a person that I look up to. You are, you are certainly like a big brother and you have been very generous and, and gracious to me. Uh, your work inspires me. I, I follow you uh, religiously, although you don't know it all the time. I'm always watching what you're doing and trying to you know, keep up with you know, the, the, the new and innovative ways that you do your work. Tell me, who inspires you uh, when you look at your your career and and all the things that you've done. Uh, give me a, a short list of, of people who've inspired you to continue to do what you do.
2: That's a good question. Thank you. There are a few things. Once my grandmother who, who passed away, she was one 102 and a half. She passed wow. away a summer before last. Uh, I would say that she's probably the first psychologist in in, in our uh <laughs> in our family. She's my mother's mother. Uh, Annie Annie Baldera, uh from Louisiana, uh, but lived in in uh, Houston, Texas. She uh, is a is a very very compassionate and and uh, very uh, soft-spoken woman with a lot of presence and and uh, I really appreciate her. Another after I moved to uh, San Diego was a um, a neighbor who lived across the street. We called her Ann Barber. She was uh, we were just you know close family, uh, friends, and uh, we used to play with her sons, and And she was an educator. Originally from the East Coast, one of the black, first Black Republican I've ever met. <laughs> uh, uh, but she was in Jack and Jill Club, or mm-hmm. Scout, there, I mean, she's very, very active. Um, and she, I, I couldn't read very well when I came from Houston because I was undereducated. And she told me, she goes, you're, smart. you're one of the smartest people I've met. Wow. And I was blown away because I, I didn't see myself as a smart, right? right. Uh, but she, she was able to see something that I couldn't see. And that was very helpful to me. So I I, I, I uh, dedicated my dissertation to her. One of, the, one of the best books that I've ever read, and I still um, read it, now is by Taylor Cox on multicultural organizations, written back I think in 1991 or something like that. And, and Taylor Cox was one of the first ones who says, you have to think about doing this culture diversity work from an organizational change perspective. Now, basically how he influenced the, um, the emergence and development of, of um, culture diversity profession is that he in his work, he talked about, it was like in a circle of circles, right? Mm-hmm. He talked about these elements that you need to transform organizations. And they have today become our best practices, like things like, you know, you got to get the leadership on board. Mm-hmm. You got to do an assessment. You got to have a, a practice of like diversity training, uh, cetera. But he didn't have, that was his framework, but I didn't see, I couldn't see in it where his organizational change framework was. So in my trying to find out, understand how this would help give us insights into organizational change from a culture diversity perspective, I um, developed uh, what I refer to as our stage model of, inclusion and belonging, which shows the stages through which you become more inclusive. And what needs to happen at each one of those stages, first how you accept, you assess what stage you're in, but then what have to, have, needs to happen at each one of those stages in order for the organization to uh, raise its bar to get to the next higher level, right? So he was very instrumental in that. And then my one of my early mentors, she just retired, this is Judith Katz, who's with the um, Khalil Jameson Consulting Group for 25 years, something like that. She was a partner there. And Judith, I would call her up on occasion just to figure out how to do a lot of this consulting stuff. She always <laughs> gave me her time. And one of the things she told me was I actually got that stage model from one of her earlier works. Mine's a little different, but it was certainly uh, impacted by it. But one thing she said, to Billy, Try not to do this work by yourself, she doesn't, you, know, mm. you know, you learn yeah. you, you're going to get a, a lot farther, um, when you partner with people because right. you know you can only do so much by yourself. So, um, right. she was very helpful in that. I wish I, I had always uh, uh taken her advice to the, to the masses, <laughs> but I did what I could, and she actually right. edited some of my earlier works and stuff like that. But. So, I can tell you that those are uh, some of the mentors I.
1: Dr. Billy, my grandmother used to say to me that it is best to give people their flowers while they can smell them and they can enjoy them. And I want you to know the impact that you've had on me, uh, just understanding all of the things that I can help people in terms of uh, uh, raising their awareness and and give them tools to work with. Uh, I got a call. From a good friend of mine who has just been promoted, uh, just got a position as a, uh, the head of her diversity and inclusion uh, department last week, and she said, "Tony, what do I do? Right? What, what you know?" And so we sat down and talked, and I opened up my my Dr. Billy book of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I said, "Okay, first thing you have to do is you have to determine how much support you're getting from the leadership." I say you have to do an assessment. You have to do look at your employee climate surveys, and you have to understand what the demographic of the organization is. You may have to look at promotion numbers, and you know see if there's any uh, anything in there that you can you know pull out, and 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 then you have to train your staff. And so I, I am so pleased and honored to be able to say that all of those suggestions came from uh, my Dr. Billy. Book of Diversity, <laughs> Equity, and <laughs> in Inclusion. And as you said, there's a you, there's so much of this work that is very ad, mostly advantageous if you're teaming and partnering with people. I will also tell you that I have been in touch with many of your graduates, the graduates of your program. We stay in regular uh, contact. Uh, some of those uh, relationships that I developed at the first conference I attended, uh, and even the uh, one that that I participated in. So. Uh, your, your, your impact, you know, your legacy is secure. You know, people who have worked with you uh, that you have mentored and trained are still, you know, holding up the, the banner strong. That's great. Dr. Billy. we have a tradition here on the Black Lives Matter radio show. You know, I kind of do the, the exciting uh, conversations and you know, I kind of dig into the background, throw a couple of curveballs when I can just to kind of, again, provide education and awareness. But the last question is left to my, my co-host, uh, my friend, my mentor, my peer, my business partner, Ms. Hope Katz So she will ask you the last question or questions, and then uh, we will wrap up from there. Hope, over to you.
0: Thank you both. Yeah, this is really fascinating. One of the things that jumped out at me was this toolbox. And one of the things that we're really trying to do with the Black Lives Matter radio show is provide education for our viewers and our listeners. So what is one thing from your toolbox that you'd like us to take away this evening?
2: I think that the most important thing from a Black history perspective is that we're doing, Black people are doing life-changing things almost every day. And Notwithstanding uh, the people who are in healthcare and teachers and things like that, people are doing stuff that are really making an impact. And if we can just take an inventory in our lives about the people who we have around us and what they're doing, and just ask the question, what's important about this? Mm-hmm. I bet we'll find that we got a lot of hidden figures in our lives <laughs> that we can, we can share with our community, we can share with our family, we can share with our friends, et cetera, uh, people we're going to school with, so that we began to talk about Black people in a way that really matters. and bust those stereotypes that all of us unconsciously are um, carrying around. So I would say that would probably.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous. And thank you for that. Um, We really hope that that's true for everyone everywhere as we move forward. So thank you, Tony Farmer. You've been uh, wonderful as always. Uh, We're thrilled to be celebrating Black History Month tonight with Dr. Billy Vaughn from the Diversity Training University International. He is the senior managing director and creator and obviously the godfather of this movement. So we are honored to have you on the Black Lives Matter radio show. And I'm Hope Katz Gibbs of Incandescent Radio and all things incandescent. Uh, We will speak with you next Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern when Tony will have his next guest on. So thank you, Billy. Thank you, Tony. So that's all for today's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show on incandescentradio.com. We have an amazing lineup of future guests, just like you heard on today's show. So be sure to tune in for another episode and tell your friends about us so they can listen too. If you or someone you know should be a guest on our show, send me an email, hopecatsgibbs at gmail.com, and we'll be in touch. Again, this is Black Lives Matter Radio Show.com on the Incandescent Radio Network. We look forward to talking to you. Until then, stay safe and be well.